let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Here's what DC is talking about. Anyone who's ever stared at a metro map has probably fantasized about their ideal metro line. That's the new route that takes them exactly where they want to go. Cleveland Park to National Harbor? No problem. Haynes Point to Potomac Mills? Just close your eyes. I'm sitting down with Metro historian Zach Schrag and transit planner Matt Johnson to talk about our favorite make-believe lines and why they can or can't happen in real life. Today is Thursday, March 16th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, so Zach Schrag, you are the author of The Definitive History of the Washington Metro. Matt Johnson, you're a transportation planner, and you've recently had the fortune or misfortune of getting yourself elected to the ANC in DuPont Circle. So I want to like geek out a little bit to start. There are all of these maps floating around these sites like a Metro map maker that allow you to create your own Metro line. And I'm sure you have done it, at least in your own heads possibly when you're trying to get someplace that it doesn't go. What is your uh, ideal fantasy metro line if topography and money were no object? First of all, I should say as a historian, my starting place is always ideas that were proposed in the past. So you ask me about metro lines that could be, I look back to the 1968 map of what was called the adopted regional system. And in addition to the metro lines that we know and love, in thick black lines, there are a lot of dashed lines going in many directions. Uh, The most important one, of course, is the I-66 route past Vienna, which would go much closer to George Mason University than the current Vienna so-called GMU stop. So obviously- Which is just for the record where you work. (laughs) Oh, it it coincidentally happens to be where my office is. Uh, Of course, I have no particular dog in the fight, but I will say that the median strip is there. I don't know actually how much of it has been demolished in the recent I-66 construction. But the idea is that building along a highway line is one of the more cost-effective ways to extend metro, though of course it does present land use challenges. Matt, what about you? I am a problem solver. I like a challenge. I like a puzzle. I love puzzles. And so thinking like, okay, let's add a new metro line. Well, how do we fit it into the city, right? How do we fit it into the system as a whole? It can be a really interesting challenge. And so I I personally think that the most important line that we can build in the metro system is the so-called M Street subway or or the alternate blue line sometimes referred to. And so what this would basically do is create a separate route for the blue line between Roslyn and the east side of DC. So potentially uh, a new station that's separate from the existing Roslyn station but connected to it and then going through Georgetown, through the West End, through Golden Triangle, past the Convention Center, down to Union Station and then out the H Street corridor past the Atlas Theater 
and potentially rejoining the, the existing orange and silver lines at uh, River Terrace, where there could be a new infill station to allow transfers between the lines. And the main reason for this is because the current blue, orange, silver line is um, oversubscribed when it comes to train service. Right now, the way the metro system is designed, there is a capacity of about 26 trains per hour, which if you do the math, is about a train every two and a half minutes. Um, but when it practically comes down to things, that means that the trains have to hit that mark exactly. And when there's any kind of deviation from that, when we're running that level of service, it causes all kinds of cascading delays. And anyone who's ridden the blue, orange, and silver lines understands those delays can absolutely cascade. So, so in order to fantasize about metro lines, I think we should probably circle back to why it looks the way it actually does. And Zach, you wrote a great book about it. So the metro system that we all know and and sometimes love and love to malign. Basically, it, it began life as a thing that was getting people from the suburbs into offices and back. And you wouldn't really, if you went out on New Year's Eve, you wouldn't see anyone in like tuxedos in the metro. And it was not used for a whole lot of other purposes. Why was it designed that way? What was the thinking? Give us the context of when it was invented. So you can start the story in different places. I chose to start it in 1955, the period where Americans are buying cars at enormous numbers. There had been the Depression, there had been the war when car production had stopped. And then after 1948, people just want automobiles and many of them want suburban houses as well. And in most cities, including Washington, the idea was to build freeways as many directions and many freeways as you could possibly fit. And there was enough of a community of people who cared about historic preservation, who cared about the L'Enfant Plan, who cared about keeping the city alive to say, we don't want to cut up the city with freeways, we want something else. And that something else that, that could handle this capacity was rapid transit. So the idea starting off was to reduce the number of freeways and to build metro instead. And eventually that actually got accelerated where more freeways were canceled and the money used for metro. And so you can think of metro as the freeways that we don't have for the most part. Obviously, we have part of the original freeway system going through southwest D.C., but fewer freeways through downtown D.C. and more rapid transit than you would get in most American cities. All right, so Washington's not, you know, this isn't Dallas. This, it's not a, a flat place. There is a river. There's Rock Creek, which is like a deep ravine in parts of the central city. There's also, obviously, budgets. How much did geology and money feature in why Metro came to look the way it looked? So for the most part, when planners were thinking about rights of way, they were thinking less about physical geography as laid down over the eons and more, I would say, about 19th century geography as laid down by the railroads. So if you look at a railroad map of Washington in the late 19th century, you'll see the B&O line and the Pennsylvania line, and those already had established right-of-way, and that was the easiest place to put a rail line. So the curve of the red line going up through Silver Spring is going along the old B&O tracks um, and some of the same viaducts. And similarly, the orange line and the Blue Line through Alexandria, those were all built on railroad right-of-way. And then in other cases, you had those highways that were being planned and eventually built. Uh, again, obviously, I-66 is one where that is the cheapest place to build a rail line is where you've already condemned the land and have the median strip. Beyond that, planners did have to think about how to build 
uh, particularly when it came to the water. And so uh, it's if you're going to go across water, you don't want to go through it on a train. You either go over on a bridge. Uh, and again, the yellow line bridge follows the old railroad corridor or you go under in a tunnel. And so not only do they have to get under the Potomac at Roslyn and Foggy Bottom, they also have to get under Rock Creek between Woodley Park and DuPont Circle. And that explains both why those stations are so deep because Metro is in the process of diving under the river. And it's also a big part of the reason why we don't have a station in Georgetown is because Georgetown is close to the water, both the river and the canal. And that would limit the prospects for a station there. Yeah, I recall in your book, there's a great passage in, uh, about the ride from from uh, DuPont to Woodley Park and why it doesn't go to Adams Morgan. And, and you know, it has to do with crossing Rock Creek. Yes. And, and the architect's and some of the planners did want to go over Rock Creek, which would have allowed a station either in Adams Morgan or even just at Florida and Connecticut would have been a nice place for a station. But the Park Service wanted them to go under the creek, and that reduced the chance for an interim station. All right, well, let me ask you this, Matson. You're a transportation planner. I think you've mentioned a little bit of this, but say you were coming to this blind. You come from another country, uh, you get, get to Washington, you look at the map, and uh, you'd learn a little bit about the city. When you look at that map, what would you think like, wow, this is missing? I think someone who's coming from Europe would look at this map and think there was a whole lot of lines missing because for a major capital city <laughs> with a regional population of what we're around, I think, six million now, having five, now six lines, it's just, it's just not a very dense network. For most Americans, I think, who come to Washington, the metro is amazing. Like it is just an experience because they can go pretty much everywhere they need to go on the system. I mean, it really is a very extensive system for an American city, especially for a modern system. Like, yes, New York has an extensive system. Chicago has a pretty extensive system. Um, but for a city that's building a metro in the 1960s and 70s, we have a pretty complete system. And it shows that if we really wanted to commit to transit in the United States, we could. We just, we didn't. We did a pretty good job here. But looking at other places in the United States, there are so many places that could have networks if they had spent half as much of what we spent here. And I think it's a real shame, but I don't think it's the end of the line. I think that there's room for this to happen in the future as we go forward. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in D.C. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow! There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. So I suppose that both of you, as people who are deeply knowledgeable about the transportation system here, you get a lot of questions at parties and elsewhere about why is it this way or why isn't it this way? What kind of things do folks bend your ear about? Well, certainly I got the Georgetown question a lot. And <laughs> I think the best I can offer there is some context, which is to say that 
there absolutely were residents of Georgetown who did not want a station and made themselves heard. But that was true of almost every residential neighborhood that was discussed. The one station that was canceled because of citizen protest was the Oklahoma Avenue station in a predominantly African-American neighborhood. So uh, before people think that there's something exceptional about Georgetown, I asked them to look at the histories of those neighborhoods. Another question I get a lot these days is about the extension out to Dulles and beyond. And people say, well, will people want their suitcases on the train? Will they be tired when they come in from an international flight? And it's certainly true that part of the reason to build rail out in that corridor has been to serve Dulles. And especially members of Congress who fly a lot were thinking along those lines. But it's important to understand that, first of all, Dulles Airport is an important employment center. There are, I think, tens of thousands of people who work there. And so they won't be taking suitcases. They'll be taking their regular backpacks to go to work. And more importantly, the Dulles Corridor was already a booming employment center going back to the 1990s. And so I think of the Silver Line primarily as serving the development and employment needs of that corridor rather than simply getting people to and from the airport. Yeah, I think on my side, the, the questions I tend to get more are on the operations side of things. You know, why does Metro do the stuff that they do? It's less about the shape of the system and more about kind of how it operates. I do occasionally hear people who think that the Metro should go to, to BWI Airport. And really, you know, my answer to that is that Metro does not have any business going to BWI. I'm not even sure that Metro had any business going to, to Dulles. I'm not sure it's the right mode. And as someone who uh, rode the Silver Line out to Dulles on the first day of service and who also recently caught a flight out of Dulles back in December, it's a long trip. I live in DuPont Circle, so I typically will walk to Foggy Bottom to catch the Blue Orange or Silver Lines if I ever need to go to Virginia. And um, it's like an hour-long trip on Metro. There's a lot of stops. And I think Dulles might have been better served had we used a regional rail type system. And I think this is where we kind of go to, into fantasy territory, which is the whole point of this discussion. So I hope that's okay. <laughs> what a lot of people don't realize is that there, there was an electrified railroad with frequent service that actually went out near Dulles. And that railroad was called the Washington and Old Dominion, which now is a very popular regional rail trail that goes out through Vienna and Reston. But can we imagine a world where there was an electrified train that started at a minimum in Roslyn? That's where the terminal was in Roslyn. It didn't go all the way downtown Washington, but the terminal was in Roslyn. You could get on a train in Roslyn, an electric train in Roslyn, and have a high-speed trip out to Dulles. So this is sort of like in Paris, where there's, there is a, a rapid rail train uh, and the metro that are kind of overlaid on top of one another. Right. So I think that that having a system like that, that kind of, and we, we have the bones of that. We have a regional rail network, you know, on the VRE side, it's mostly commuter oriented. On the Mark side, two of the lines are mostly commuter oriented, but the, the Penn line or the, the line that runs along the Northeast corridor is electrified, has high platform stations at, at most of the stations and could really operate very frequently. Have you spent much time on the Metro map maker site? And if so, is there anything you, any map that a civilian has made that popped out at you? I'm afraid not. Again, going back in <laughs> time, uh, you know, I, I've seen these maps, uh, you know, again, going back to the 1950s, 1960s, uh, Stan Allen, who was the project manager on the architecture side for Harry Weiss, had a map which had lines in many directions. I think he had one, it might have been red, white, and blue going around the beltway. Uh, I think he had a gold line and a pink line, just all the colors in the crayon box. But 
obviously no particular way to pay for them um, or even to do some of the traffic analyses. I will say that when I wrote the book, it came out in 2006, it, it did seem to me that there was one really obvious missed opportunity, and that was Tyson's Corner, which again has something around 100,000 jobs. Uh, so, you know, Matt is talking from that DC, Maryland perspective, his side of the river with how long it takes to go to Dulles. I, as a Virginian for close to 20 years, see what could be the seeds of a Twin Cities where you have, you know, a major downtown in historic Washington and another one comprising basically Tyson's and Reston. And, you know, maybe in future generations, you would have the need and the money to go in other directions. So right now, Tyson's is served from the east and the west. Could we serve it from the northeast with, uh, you know, something parallel in the beltway? Could we serve it from the south? Close to 20 years at, at Mason may have uh, changed my perspective about where mm -hmm. the center of the region is. And I will say in the last 20 years, Virginia, Northern Virginia has been growing faster than the region as a whole. And so this is not entirely uh, my own idiosyncratic take. I think Zach is right. Tyson's is a major job center. I think I heard somewhere that there are more jobs in downtown Tyson's than there are in downtown Richmond. So it's, it's like the biggest job center in the state of Virginia. And Tyson's is huge. Uh, it's, it has four stations, but those four stations are much further apart than, you know, pick any four stations in, in downtown D.C. Like it probably should have more metro stations. And, and you know, I, I know that back when they were planning metro and I, I've been in the D.C. area since 2007 and they were doing the alternatives analysis for the Silver Line back then. And they looked at like a kind of a metro loop at one point where there was kind of the, what we know of as the existing Silver Line along Route 123 and Route 7, but also a metro line that stayed in the median of the toll road and had stations on the north edge of, of Tyson's and kind of looped back around. And I think that, you know, given the number of jobs, maybe extending the purple line from Maryland one day to, to connect over to Tyson's and maybe continuing it on over toward Fairfax uh, so that you can kind of have trips that are going through Tyson's as like a downtown. I think that's really something that that's not a fantasy. That's kind of a reasonable consideration of what the future could hold given the number of jobs. And and as Tyson's continues to urbanize, as they start to fill in with more residential and more entertainment and institutional uses, it continues to become a very critical part of the region. One of the things you mentioned, Matt, was about the speed with which metro systems are created in China. Here, it's, you know, been years and years and years and the Purple Line, you know, barely creaks along toward production. Is it possible to move at a better speed in a democracy which, where there are environmental and other protections? Is China the only, the sort of the counterexample because they are able to to roll right over uh, popular skepticism or protest? Or is there something about Washington or the United States that has caused, causes things to go so immensely slowly and that would make it harder to expand the system because people don't want to deal with the schlep? Yeah. I think that the environmental process absolutely slows things down, and that's not necessarily a bad thing on its face. I mean, I think it's important that we're considering the environmental uh, implications of projects. But it's not, that's not the only thing that's the problem. The biggest problem with why we can't build stuff fast in the United States is just simply money. It's not that, that we want to build more and we just, we're being slowed down by the environmental process and we have you know, a dozen metro lines that are going through the EIS process. We don't. We just have, we just have the purple line, right? The main issue is money. If we had had the full cost, the full amount of money to build the silver line, we could have built the whole thing in 2014. We didn't have to break it into two phases. Now, 
America is the richest country in the world. So when I say we don't have the money, I mean we're spending the money on other things. And what it fundamentally comes down to is we just don't want to do it, politically speaking, or we don't want to do it enough. And so having um, spending the money, having that money would help. Now, in terms of the environmental process, I think you know fundamentally the environmental assessment process in the United States is broken because it considers projects in a vacuum. And we don't exist in it. Dr. Schrag's book talks about this a lot. If we hadn't built metro, we would have built freeways. We would have still tried to bring people into DC. So the cost of not building metro would not have been we saved all this money. We would have spent so much more money building highways. And as someone who lives in a neighborhood that would have been decimated by a freeway that wasn't built, personally, I'm really glad that we didn't build those freeways. But also, it's much better for the environment that we didn't build those. Hey, let me ask you one other one last question. We talked a lot about destinations. Speaking of China, we hear about speed of the bullet trains. Is there any world in which metro trains become faster? I think that's the wrong question to ask. Metro is actually pretty fast. They operate about 65 miles an hour. I think on the green line, mostly it's 59 elsewhere. But the thing that's, that makes metro slow is not the speed of the vehicle. You know, the big factor that curtails your speed as a tra any kind of transit mode is the dwell time in stations. It's not the top speed of the vehicle or even the average speed of the vehicle. It's how long do you spend in stations? There were some of us who were pushing Metro for the 7,000 series cars to have four doors per side. Because when you go to like Gallery Place or Union Station or Farragut North at rush hour, the thing that's slowing down trains is not the fact that the trains have to stop at Farragut North and people get on and off. It's the fact that there's only three doors per side and people are trying to get off the trains. There's only one platform. And this does exist in the United States. Atlanta has it at two stations, Five Points and Lindbergh Center have places where the doors open on both sides. And you have twice as many doors because there's platforms on both sides. You can get off so much faster. The trains don't have to spend so long on the stations. And that's what actually causes your capacity and your and your time constraints. Um, I will say in terms of speeding things up, another you know big delay in terms of the whole transit experience is what's called the last mile problem. How do you get to the station? Because you know, if I were to walk to the nearest metro station, that would be 25 minutes or something. Now, as it happens, I own a bicycle and there's a very nice bike facility and that cuts it down to about 11 minutes and that's a much better time. And obviously we've had a lot of experimentations with electric scooters and electric bicycle bike shares and all the rest. But I think we do have to notice that this has been one of the big improvements to Metro over the last couple of decades is the availability of bike share. And now you can get to near where you're going and then get to your actual destination a lot faster if that destination has a capital bike share station closer to it. And so there are different levels of the whole trip experience that we have to consider here and not expect Metro to be everything to all people. Zach Schrag, Matt Johnson, thank you guys so much for being here. Great. Yeah, we appreciate the invite. And before you go, here's some quick news. A conservative nonprofit led by former President Donald Trump's chief of staff is buying up a bunch of properties near the Capitol building to create what's called Patriots Row. The organization, called Conservative Partnership Institute, hasn't publicized what it hopes to use the space for. Meanwhile, Governor Wes Moore wants Maryland to adopt a California rule that requires all new vehicles sold in the state after 2035 and beyond to be electric. The state's Department of the Environment is expected to approve the regulation, and it would take effect in September. Also, musician Dave Grohl, remember him, 
has released the name for the new venue he's building behind the 930 Club. The new venue is actually a replica of the original 930 Club, and it will be called the Atlantis, which is the original name of the club in the Atlantic building at 930 F Street Northwest that became the 930 Club. Grohl, a DMV native, says the 930 Club was the best place to play in America and like a church for rising musicians. And lastly, today's DC life hack is from our guest, Zach Schrag. He says the WOND railroad was turned into a bike trail to Purcellville, Virginia. Go biking out there. And that is all for today here on CityCast DC. If you enjoyed the show, tweet it with your own fantasy metro map. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye.